cloud. Okay, welcome to the Scottsdale Saturday Big Book Study, where we will study the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is Lauren N, and I'm a compulsive overeater. Please note the speaker will be will be recorded during the duration of the study. However, the Q and A session will not be recorded. Previous weeks recorded are available on the YouTube channel under Scottsdale Big Book Study or on the website or on um, what's the, it's called, um, uh, what's it called? I'm sorry. Um, Podbean, Podbean. are you thinking of Podbean? Podbean, couldn't remember it. Um, (laughs) I will be the host for the study today. The co-hosts are Sue L from Pennsylvania and Nancy J from Geneva. If you have any questions or concerns, please contact your hosts or co-hosts today in a private chat message. Please make sure to keep your microphones on mute at all times during the workshop. We also ask that you refrain from making um, use of the chat function, even uh, even to message other attendees privately so you can be present for the workshop. Um, uh, We ask you to turn off your video if you're exercising, eating, or must step away from your screen. Before I pass the meeting to Harlan, if you, I would like to point out some information that may be useful. The previous recordings of this meeting are available on YouTube under Scott's Big Book. The recording for this session will be posted on the YouTube channel within a couple of days. There are also links to the recordings together with some very helpful information on Harlan's Big Book blog site. I will now post the detail. I will post the details in the chats for you to make the seventh tradition. Thank you very much. And I am now going to turn it over to Harlan. Thank you, Lauren. And let's remember that Nancy's not in Geneva, Switzerland. She's in Geneva, Illinois. So there's a little bit of a difference, although climate-wise, probably Switzerland is more gentle than Geneva, Illinois. (laughs) But uh, anyway, thank you for all your service to all of you who make this possible. There are much more hands, many more hands in this than mine, for sure. And I'm grateful to each and every one of those people who make this possible. It's a beautiful day. It's August the 21st. We're kind of winding down our summer season, and I'm so glad that you guys could join us today. So whether you're listening on podcast, whether you're listening uh, live, I want to just welcome you to our big book study this morning. We have been talking about the chapter, the family afterwards, and we have gone through the chapter in a way that hopefully will illuminate some of the things in here that possibly we haven't looked at before. And one of the things that I dislike are are the people, I don't dislike the people, I dislike when these chapters get poo-pooed. The three chapters that get diminished, poo-pooed all the time are to wives, the family afterward and two employers. And there's a lot of really good stuff in these chapters if we just kind of open our minds and look at these chapters as being more than to the family or more than to the wife 
or more than to the employer, and that these chapters work on a bunch of different levels. So with that in mind, let's go to page 133, 133 in the chapter, The Family Afterward, and let's see what we find. We're going to start, but this does not mean that we disregard human health issues. So we're on page 133. We're toward the bottom of the page about, well, maybe not really. We're in the second full paragraph. But this does not mean that we disregard human health measures. God has abundantly supplied this world with fine doctors, psychologists, and practitioners of various kinds. Do not hesitate to take your health problems to such persons. And one of the things that I have seen in my journey through Overeaters Anonymous is a reluctance on some people's parts to get the help that they may need. Now, Overeaters Anonymous and the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and the fellowship of Overeaters Anonymous are wonderful things to utilize for our eating disorder, whether we be anorexic, be restrictors, whether we're on the, on the obese side, doesn't matter what side of the coin you're on, this is the place to come to. But when I needed my knees replaced, I've had both knees replaced, I've had my hips replaced, I've had 19 hours of plastic surgery in two sessions, uh, I went to a doctor. I didn't go to a meeting and say, gosh, guys, my knee is really killing me. Could you guys pray or dance around the room or light a candle and maybe it'll fix my knee? No, I went to a surgeon and we scheduled the surgery and we went in and we did what we needed to do. So <laughs> I need help when I have a strep throat or I have whatever it is that I have, I go to a doctor. So it's knowing where to look for things in life. And one of the things that I've learned in life is I have a tendency to look for a tuxedo at the gas station and they don't have tuxedos at the gas station. I have a tendency to look for things in places where they are not. And I have a tendency not only to look for them, I have a tendency to repeat that insane behavior. And I will ask people to be something that they're not. I'll ask people to feel something that they're not. I'll ask people to think something that they're not. And I keep repeating it and repeating it and repeating it. And one of the things that a very famous person said, when someone tells you who they are, believe them, believe them. And to stop trying, I'm going to use a Yiddish expression, Hakenchainik. Now, what does Hakenchainik really mean? It means bang on my tea kettle. But what we're using it for is don't nag someone or don't try to, uh, persistently try to get somebody to be something that they indeed are not. And I have spent a lot of time in my life trying to get someone to like me romantically or to, you know, come around to my way of thinking. And what I'm reminded of is 
acceptance is the key to my serenity. And acceptance doesn't necessarily mean approval. I don't have to, uh, I don't have to like the fact that there are injustices in this world. I don't have to like the fact that there are people who today are going to pass. I don't have to like the fact that, you know, all of us have different difficulties or whatever that may be. I don't have to like it, but here's what I do have to do. I have to accept it. Why do I have to accept it? Because my lack of acceptance can kill me because what that means is I will look to the food as a step up from where I am. And if I'm in that resentment, if I'm in that selfishness, what we're really boiling down to is selfishness, the script. So the script cannot be followed by everybody that I want to follow my script. And if you listen to me, I'll give you lots of reasons why you should think the way I want you to think, act the way I want you to act, do what I want you to do and feel what I want you to feel, but that's not realistic. So when I need outside help from a doctor, if I need outside help from whomever, I go and I get it. I go to a nutritionist because the last person that should be uh, deciding what I should eat and how much of it I should eat is me because I could take a yak and, and cut the tail off and cut the head off and think that it's four ounces. I could take a, a water buffalo and say, yeah, that looks like six ounces to me, you know, because I get six or eight, whatever it is, depending on the protein. But the bottom line is, is that I go to a nutritionist every six months, every 24 weeks, I go to a cardiologist and I go to a nutritionist. I have a condition called atrial fibrillation of the heart. And what that means is your heart beats boom, 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 boom. And my heart beats much quicker. And the danger is, is that because of that, I could get a stroke. So I have to take a blood thinner. I have to take a pill every morning that thins my blood so that I hopefully, boy, I don't want to get a stroke. So I take that pill religiously. And boy, you can bet your life that when I start running low on that pill, whoop, I call up the pharmacist and I say, hey, it's me. Uh, get them ready. Uh, send them out because I need those pills. I don't just go to a meeting and say, hey, I want to pray the third step prayer or the seventh step prayer. I get, the, I get that medication. Very, very important for me to remember to go to the proper place. Let's continue. Most of them give freely of themselves and their fellows <clears throat> that, their, that their fellows, sorry, may enjoy sound minds and bodies. Not so much anymore. I got to tell you that I'm on Medicare now. I'm 67 years old. So I don't pay a copay anymore when I go to the cardiologist or I go to the foot doctor, whatever it is I go. I don't pay a copay anymore, but I can guarantee you they're getting money from somebody or they wouldn't be so apt to treat me. They're getting paid. And I get these, uh, they're not letters. They're forms that Medicare or the health insurance will send out and they'll say, hey, uh, this is not a bill, but this is what we covered. And it'll have the name of the doctor and it'll say, 
we covered Dr. So-and-so and we did this and you had this and this is how much we covered. And I always look to see where's my part. Oh, zero. The rest of it, I don't care. Just as long as I'm not getting charged, you give them whatever you want. I don't care. It has nothing to do with me. So I just, I kind of make sure whew, there's no part in this that I have to pay, which is good because I sure paid my taxes in this country for a long, 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 long time. And I am unabashedly and unashamedly a Medicare person. So I'm good with that. I earned it and I deserve it. And that's fine with me. So they pay the doctor, but I don't, I don't know too many doctors, maybe in some uh, clinic type situations, but I don't know. Now, Dr. Bob, he treated thousands of people with no thought of, with no thought of charge. So I do want to remind you that to take a look at the book in the time that it was written, you have to remember something. I don't want to get into a whole discussion of history and things like that. Dr. Bob treated thousands and thousands of alcoholics without thought of charge. In those days, you could very, very, it was very difficult to get an alcoholic in the hospital. They usually had to lie. They had to put down that he had gastritis, which in most cases they did. You know, a lot of these guys, they can't eat. You know, they don't eat very much food. That's for sure. They just don't. And one of the reasons is food makes him ill. And in Bill's story, he talks about he had to drink a certain amount of liquor before he could eat any breakfast and he was 40 pounds underweight. Well, one of the reasons is the food gets him sick and they just don't like the food. It just, and a lot of them have what's called alcoholic gastritis. And my gastritis is a different gastritis than what these guys get. Um, I was hoping for the other time. No, I'm kidding. But ugh, the bottom line is, is that he treated thousands of people without thought of charge. And that's what Bill is writing from that perspective, that his co-founder and Bill, or excuse me, Dr. Bob was not really recognized as a co-founder of AA until around 38 so during 35, 36, and 37, it was not referred as a co-founder. It was Bill that founded it, and there was no co-founder. And then right around 38, they started referring to Dr. Bob as the co-founder. But what a lot of people don't realizes that took a while. It wasn't an immediate thing. It wasn't an immediate situation. But nary a harsh word ever passed between these two very, very different uh, individuals, these two very different personalities. Good God, you couldn't get to more different personalities. One very quiet, very reserved, very modest, very dedicated to service. And one was a huckster and he wanted to charge out there and he sponsored and he was going to take these guys off the bar stools. And, you know, Dr. Bob was the perfect compliment to Bill and Bill was the perfect compliment to Dr. Bob. It was just so beautiful the way God Almighty in his infinite wisdom 
orchestrated all of it because you couldn't get two more divergent personalities if you looked high and low. Let's continue. Try to remember that though God has wrought miracles among us, we should never belittle a good doctor or psychiatrist. Their services are often indispensable in treating a newcomer and in following his case afterward. You know, we've talked a lot about Bill Wilson, and we've talked a lot about the fact that Bill was a person who suffered from depression. Bill suffered from clinical depression his entire life. When he was a teenager, he was in love with a girl named Bertha Bamford before Lois. He was in love with Bertha Bamford and Bertha lived in Vermont. But <clears throat> in Vermont, when you needed certain medicine, medical care, you went to New York because Vermont is a very rural, very sparsely populated place. I think it's funny that both of our co-founders, Bill and Bob, were both from Vermont. Isn't that interesting how they were both from the same state? But anyway, Bertha Bamford was supposed to uh, get this operation and she did. She went up, she went down to New York to get the operation. And unfortunately, she passed away. She was only 17 years old, for God's sakes. So I can't even imagine the tragedy that the parents had to deal with and the relatives. And the, I mean, my God, 17 years old and she's gone. And Bill took this very hard. This was the love of his life up to that point. <sighs> and he fell into a deep depression. And that condition, although not always manifested, depressants are not always depressed. It, it comes, it goes, it comes, it goes. Well, he was under the care of a psychiatrist his entire life. Uh, he was under the care of Dr. Harry Tebow, and Harry Tebow wrote Appendix 3 in the big book, and Harry Tebow was on the General Service Board of Alcoholics Anonymous as a non-alcoholic member, which they had uh, non-alcoholics at that time on the board. They don't anymore. And he also came under the care during the 1950s. Uh, oh, wait, before I leave Harry Tebow, I want to just remind you of something important. And I know I'm digressing from the chapter here, but I, I want to bring this out. And this is how God works in mysterious ways. Uh, I don't know the exact quote, but God's wonder, I mean, it's just beyond comprehension. Now, Harry Tebow wrote a paper in 1949. He wrote a paper. And up to the point that Harry Tebow's paper was written, alcoholism was not accepted as an illness by either the American Psychiatric Association or the American Medical Association. It was not accepted as an illness, as a disease. And that's why Dr. Silkworth said to Bill Wilson, don't put my name in there. See, when you go in your doctor's opinion now in your fourth edition book, you see very truly yours, William D. Silkworth. In the first 10 printings of the first edition, in the first 10 printings, Dr. Silkworth's name did not appear in there. And the reason is 
You see, Dr. Silkworth's opinion was not based on fact. It was based on his opinion. That's why the chapter is the doctor's opinion. Otherwise, it would have been said the doctor's fact, or it would have been titled facts about alcoholism or something. It's the title of the chapter has never been changed, although it was moved from the main body of the book into the Roman numeral sections as of the second printing of the first edition. But the, the and, and I'll give you the reason why, since so we can save time at 11 o'clock. The reason why doctors, the doctor's opinion was moved is because it was felt that the book Alcoholics Anonymous should be a book for alcoholics, but also by alcoholics. And Silky was not an alcoholic. Now, but let's get back to Silky because I didn't finish what I started. Silkworth would not allow Bill to put his name in there. He said, they'll run me out of the medical profession if you put my name in there. I can't prove any of this. I know it like you know the shortest distance between two points is a straight line, but how do you prove it? Well, he said, don't put my name in there. So Bill didn't. Now in 1949, as they started to go to press with the 11th printing of the first edition, Harry Tebow's paper on alcoholism being a disease was accepted first by the American Psychiatric Association, which is huge. The American Psychiatric Association is extremely influential. Then the American Medical Association in the fall of 1949 looked at the paper and said, we will now accept alcoholism as a disease, as an illness. And the fact that Bill Wilson had to have psychiatry because of his depression and his anxiety, he also suffered from anxiety, changed the world, changed the course of the world. Harry Tebow's paper, not only did they accept alcoholism as an illness, which changed so much, I don't have the time to even, you know, I don't even have the time to go there, as they say, but it gave the, the fellowship, the book, it gave, and then Silkworth said, okay, you can put my name in there now. Uh, and so he was included from the 11th printing of the first edition until today. It says Dr. William D. Duncan Silkworth, MD. Now, Dr. Silkworth died in 51. Dr. Silkworth died in 1951. And just to be a brat, every once in a while, when I go to my cardiologist or I go to my a foot doctor, or I go to a doctor other than my primary care physician, they'll put, they'll give me a form to fill out and they'll say, who's your primary care physician? And just to be a brat once in a while, I'll put down William Duncan Silkworth and I'll put down the address of Towns Hospital, 293 Central Park West, New York, New York, just to be a schmo. But I always, I always change it later, but I got, it's got to be fun for me too. Come on. It's got to be fun for me too. But anyway, so these needs, these calling for outside help, they're very important. 
And if you need that kind of help, by all means, for the love of God, go get it. And any sponsor or any, any facet of Overeaters Anonymous that presents themselves as a, as a Overeaters Anonymous affiliated fellowship, if they're telling you not to take your medicine, if they're telling you not to go to outside help, then they are telling you something that is not reconcilable in the big book of AA. And when, they, when people tell me anything other than what's in this book, I have a tendency to ignore it. We had, and I, I won't name it, we had a faction of OA that came out of Boston, Mass, a number of years ago. And they were saying to people, well, if you're really abstinent and you're really working your steps, you don't need your anxiety medication. You don't need your, depress your depression medication. You don't need this medication or that medication. And Overeaters Anonymous became extremely alarmed. This is at the end of Roseanne's life. This is, oh, maybe four or five years before she passed away. And Roseanne got up and said, we need to change this or exclude these people, this group, from any affiliation with Overeaters Anonymous. And we need to get an injunction against them for identifying as an OA meeting because we are not doctors and we are not psychiatrists and we are not qualified to tell people what their food plan should be in most cases. We are not qualified to tell people not to take their prescribed medication. We are not qualified to tell a person that what the doctor is telling them is, is erroneous. We don't have degrees in medicine. We don't have degrees in anything but just being recovered compulsive over years. And, and my sponsor lives in Los Angeles. My sponsor's name is John. He lives in Los Angeles. He told me about this when this was going on years ago. And OA was up in arms over this because they said somebody is going to hurt themselves and we are going to get sued. And we do not hold with anyone. I don't care who you are. If you are a sponsor and or sponsored, if you are the sponsee, I don't care who you are. No one in OA has the right to tell you what medicine you should take if it is prescribed by a licensed physician. We are not doctors, nor are we therapists, nor are, and even if you are a doctor, and even if you are a therapist, and even if you are a psychiatrist, and even if you are God knows what you are, there are probably doctors that are members of our fellowship. And well, you're not that person's doctor. You are unqualified to, to regulate such things. And the reason I want to make a statement about this is I know in my mind that there are people today that may be told, may be told by their sponsor or by well-intentioned whoever, I don't know who or care, you shouldn't be doing this or you shouldn't be taking that. Boulder Dash, Boulder Dash, we are Overeaters Anonymous, not doctors, psychiatrists, 
therapists, God knows what. So I want to make that very clear and plain. And if you attend meetings of another fellowship that deals with food, and they tell you those things, I hope that you will listen to your doctor, your therapist, your whomever, your psychiatrist over the rantings of someone unqualified to tell you these things. Now, this is, I know I took a lot of time for this paragraph and I didn't go back and review because I saw this paragraph and this is stuff that's very important because you see people all the time getting told narishkite. What's narishkite? Narishkite is a Yiddish word for foolishness. And I, I, I wanted to make this point because I believe that it is life and death and I believe that it is important. I believe that it is important. Let's move on, but please remember what we talked about here today. So if anybody tells you these things, you say, I'm gonna listen to my doctor. I'm gonna listen to my psychiatrist. I'm gonna listen to whomever. Okay, let's move on. Bottom of 133, one of the many doctors who had the opportunity of reading this book in manuscript form told us that the use of sweets was often helpful. Obviously not one of us. Of course, depending, depending on a doctor's advice, he thought all alcoholics should constantly have chocolate available for its quick energy value at times of fatigue. I don't know if you know this or not, but caffeine is one of the major ingredients in candy. Uh, most of your chocolate bars, most of your candy is loaded with caffeine. So it gives you that eye-opening jolt. He added occasionally in the night, a vague craving around arose, which would be satisfied by candy. I bet it would. Many of us have noticed a tendency to eat sweets and have found this practice beneficial. I wouldn't suggest it. Rather than just ignoring that paragraph, which I knew was there, I decided to read it because I just want to let you know that there is an expression in OA, there is an expression in AA, and I don't know if this expression is in Al-Anon or whomever, because I'm not a member of those fellowships, but I do know, because I went to AA for nine years when I lived in Eugene, Oregon. There is no OA in Eugene, Oregon. You either go to AA or you die. There is no OA there. At least there wasn't when I lived there 19 years ago. But um, take what you want and leave the rest is that expression. So as for me, hopefully, please God, if you come up to my bedroom and you don't see a dish of candy next to my bed, just be very, very grateful that there isn't because it wouldn't last very long. And if that dish was as deep as the Atlantic Ocean, it wouldn't last very long anyway, because once I took the first piece, that would be the end of it. And all the people over at Hershey and all the people at Nestle's would be dancing and doing the electric slide because their stock has just gone through the ceiling. And they don't know what's going on out in Arizona, but somebody sure is buying a lot of our product. Okay, 134 at the near top. 
a word about sex relations. Alcohol is so sexually stimulating to some men that they have overindulged. Couples are occasionally dismayed to find that when drinking is stopped, the man tends to be imp impotent. Unless the reason is understood, there may be an emotional upset. Some of us have had this experience only to enjoy in a few months a finer intimacy than ever. There should be no hesitancy in consulting a doctor or a psychologist. If the condition persists, we do not know of many cases where this difficulty lasted long. Now, I have had these issues. I am not an alcoholic and I never, I've never been drunk on alcohol one day in my life. I'll, I'll tell you that in my 67 years of life, if I've had 20 alcoholic beverages in my life, that would be probably overestimating it, number one. Number two, I probably never finished one because to be totally honest with you, I would any day of the year rather have a Pepsi-Cola or a Diet Pepsi than any alcohol you could conjure up. What is it about Diet Pepsi or Diet Coke? Um, I'm remembering, I don't know why I'm talking about this. I'm remembering though, when the, when the diet drinks first came out, first came out, diet, right? Cola was the first of the, of the group. Royal crown had the sodium cyclamates in their, in their diet, uh, diet, right? Cola was the first, and then came diet Pepsi. And then came the worst drink you ever put in your mouth was that tab tab I would rather drink gasoline from your tank than drink tab. It was the most disgusting aftertaste I have ever tasted in my entire life. And I've changed diapers and I've had dogs and I've, I don't know, but that was terrible. My God, was it horrible. But there are things in that Diet Pepsi and Diet Coke and Royal Crown or whatever it is, or Diet what have you, doesn't matter, that I didn't realize were jazzing me up. And that was for me. And I'm just talking about for me now. I'm not talking about for you. The artificial sweeteners for me is like drinking poison. It's a very, very uh, difficult thing because my body does not know the difference between sugar and the artificial sweeteners. So it jazzes my physical allergy. But what else it does for me, not for you, for me, the artificial sweeteners <clears throat> make, me, make me sick. And how do they make me sick? They disrupt the electrical system of the heart. And that's one of the contributing factors to the fact that I have AFib. But let's go back to the sexual thing. I have to take a drug every day that falls under the category of a beta blocker. And this beta blocker makes it harder, much tougher, much more difficult to function in the bedroom. So I have to take other medication to overcome the difficulty that this creates. I haven't had a chance to take it in a very long time, but this is what I have to do. So it goes back to the original point. If upon discovering this difficulty, if I didn't go to the proper physician, if I didn't go to the proper person, that part of my life 
would have been destroyed because I have to take the beta blocker. If I don't take the beta blocker, I'm not gonna be around. So I have to take the beta blocker and then I have to also take something else. So that's okay. That's not the worst thing in the world. That's okay, that's fine. But again, if I didn't take it to the proper physician, if I didn't take it to the proper person, I would have trouble. So alcohol may not be an issue for me in the intimacy department, but because I have been so obese and because I have had these difficulties, you know, I still pay the price, boys and girls, for the Kentucky Fried Chicken that I ate in 1967. I still pay the price for the shamrock shakes that I drank in 1973. I still pay the price. You, you have, uh, my sponsor lives in Los Angeles. He's a great guy. He's very funny. He's a comedian, actually, a retired comedian. He's a very funny guy. But he introduced me to another guy because I go to L.A. every year for the O.A. birthday. And I love the O.A. birthday. Hopefully, if God is good to all of us, we're going to all be together when the birthday convenes in person. Not this coming year, because this coming year is going to be on Zoom, but maybe in 2023, right? This is 2020. Yeah, 2023, we'll all be together. Or maybe there'll be a vision convention. We just got to get this by this Fakakta um, variant, this, this, this uh, uh, Corona variant, the Delta variant. I couldn't think of it. The Delta variant. We got to get by this thing so we can meet safely and we can meet without, you know, thinking we're going to get sick. <sighs> But anyway, he introduced me to somebody there in Los Angeles. And this guy is also hysterical. And he said to us, you can eat what you want. You can drink what you want. You can shoot what you want. You can screw who you want. You can do anything you want. But whether you want to or not, you're going to pay the price. You're going to pay the price whether you want to pay it or you don't. And boy, Truer words were never spoken because no matter who you sleep with, no matter what you eat or drink or take or shoot or whatever, there is a price to pay. And whether you want to pay it or not, you're going to pay the price. Let's move on. I'm in the middle of 134. We're going to finish the chapter today, I hope, I think. I think we will. The alcoholic may find it hard to reestablish friendly relations with his children. Their young minds were impressionable while he was drinking what he has done to them and to their mother. The children are sometimes dominated by a pathetic hardness and cynicism. They cannot seem to forgive and forget. This may hang on for months long after their mother has accepted dad's new way of living and thinking. I'm going to go back to not just my life. I have an estrangement with my daughter, uh, which bothers me. I didn't hit this kid. I didn't have sex with this kid. I didn't disgrace this kid. She got it in her head that I'm bad, a bad person. No matter where you are in things, 
let it go as best you can. There's no contracts here. There's no contracts. We think we have X amount of time and one day we're all gonna be carried off and we're gonna be carried off by angels when we hit a certain birthday, usually in the hundreds. And then we'll just be sleeping and we're gonna be carried off by angels and we're gonna just die and boy, that'll show them and won't they be sorry once I'm gone. Well, boys and girls, it doesn't really work that way. Number one. Number two, let's take care of these things while we're alive. You cannot control what other people do. I've done everything I could do with my daughter. Now it's up to God and her. There's not much more I can do. But if you have these lingering resentments, these lingering estrangements, ask God for guidance. Ask your sponsor for guidance and do whatever it is you need to do so that in the one life you have, you can be as complete as you can be. Let them go. Leave retribution to God. You can be happy or you can be right. I'd rather be happy than right. I'd rather be happy than right. Let's go on. In time, they will see that he is a new man, and in their own way, they will let him know it. When this happens, they can be invited to join in morning meditation, and then they can take part in the daily discussion without rancor or bias. From that point on, progress will be rapid. Marvelous results often follow such a reunion, and I do hope that that is the case for all of us. Top of 135. Whether the family goes on a spiritual basis or not, the alcoholic member has to, has to if he would recover. The others must be convinced of his new status beyond the shadow of a doubt. Seeing is believing to most families who have lived with a drinker. Here is a case in point. Now we're gonna be talking about Earl Treat and Earl Treat will eventually bring AA to Chicago. And there is a story in the big book on page 258 called, He Sold Himself Short. And this is the story of Earl Treat. And the next story that follows his story in the big book is called The Keys to the Kingdom, I believe. And that's the story of Sylvia Kaufman. And Sylvia Kaufman went to AA meetings because Earl brought it back from Akron and she lived in Evanston, Illinois. And Evanston is one of our collar suburbs in Chicago. There's a street called Howard Street. One side of the street, it's very way on the north side, way north, 7,200 north. And that one side of the street is Evanston and one side of the street is Chicago. So um, if you have an accident there, both, both police departments report to the accident, just in case you're wondering. But the bottom line is still this. She and Earl created many of the AA meetings that are still going on. And there is a place in Chicago called the Lincoln Park Alano Club. It's at Dickens, and I believe it's at Dickens and... Uh, off of Clark Street there, I forgot, maybe Sheffield, but it's on Dickens Street and it's called the Lincoln Park Alano Club. 
And there are meetings at that Lincoln Park Alano Club from very, very early in the morning until very, very late at night, 365 days a year. And there are some fantastic meetings in that club. And if you knock on the door at say three in the morning and you're drunk or you just need to talk to somebody and you knock on that door, there is somebody that is downstairs. They will come up and they'll let you in and they'll make you some coffee. It's awful coffee, but it's still in a way it's kind of magical. Uh, and they will talk to you provided that you're not so drunk that you don't know what world you're in. But if they can help you, they will. But that Lincoln Park Alano Club in Chicago is worth seeing. And I saw uh, Wino Joe there, Wino Joe Leith. I saw him. He was from Texas. And he had a foul mouth. Boy, did he have a foul mouth. But he got up there and he was hysterical. And there's a sign right behind him. There's a, there was a sign. I don't know if it's there now. It was a sign there. It says, lack of profanity will offend no one. And every other word out of his mouth was a swear word. And he would, he would make fun of AA and he'd say, we don't need these G damn questions. I'll give you some questions if you want to determine if you're an alcoholic. And he'd lay out in those cotton fields out there in West Texas. And he'd say, if, has the roof of your mouth ever been sunburned while you were drunk? He says, if the roof of your mouth was ever sunburned while you were drunk, you're probably an alcoholic. And then he has two more. There's, he had three questions. He says, have you ever been arrested for drunken disorderly while you were in jail? He says, if you've ever been arrested for drunken disorderly while you're in jail, you're probably an alcoholic. And then he said, here's my last damn question. Only he used the whole word. He'd say, have you ever been arrested for drunk driving from the back seat of somebody else's car? He says, if you've been arrested for drunk driving from the back seat of somebody else's car, you're probably an alcoholic. And he was hysterical. You don't hear a lot of his tapes because they were real to real in those days. And then cassette was just coming in. So a lot of it just got lost. But he was a character. And I saw him there. And uh, Clancy Immeslin, he came there. God bless Clancy. But why no Joe? He'd lay out in those cotton fields out there in West Texas. And he'd say, if the roof of your mouth has ever been sunburned while you were drinking, you're probably an alcohol. He had a thick, you could cut his Texas accent with a chainsaw. It was so thick. And he was hysterical. But anyway, this is this this is about Earl Treat, and I got off the subject a little bit here, but okay, I'm I'm sorry about that. All right, here's a case in point. One of our friends is a heavy smoker and coffee drinker. There was no doubt he overindulged. Seeing this and meaning to be helpful, his wife commenced to admonish him about it. He admitted he was overdoing these things, but frankly said he was not ready to stop. His wife is one of those persons who really feels there is certain, something rather sinful about these commodities. A lot of people don't like coffee drinking and a lot of people, you know, they just get on that smoking. So and smoking now, of course, you know, it's different than it was then. You're, you're talking since we know and before we were getting lied to. So she nabbed and her intolerance finally threw him into a fit of anger. 
he got drunk. Of course, our friend was wrong, dead wrong. He had to painfully admit that and admit that and mend his spiritual fences. Though now he is a most effective member of Alcoholics Anonymous, he still smokes and drinks coffee, but neither his wife nor anyone else stands in judgment. She sees she was wrong to make a burning issue out of such a matter when his more serious ailments were being rapidly cured. We have three little mottos which are apropos. They are, here they are. First things first, live and let live, easy does it. Now I'm gonna give you another uh, motto. You've gotta cut the rope closest to your throat first. What does that mean? If you're having trouble with food, don't worry about so much some of these other habits, coffee drinking or whatever. You've got to cut the rope closest to your throat first. You've got to cut the rope closest to your throat first. Then you'll deal with the coffee. Then you'll deal with some of this other stuff. But you got to stop the thing that's going to kill you the quickest first. Very, very important. You have to get your priorities in order. What's killing me first? That's what I'm going to gravitate to. That's what I'm going to do. So we've seen this chapter, and in this chapter, the family afterward, we have seen how we make mountains of molehills and molehills of mountains. We see that we live as addicts in an altered state, that we often catastrophize and do not see things for what they really are, that we often need help in visualizing what is real and what is our vivid imagination under the spell of the destructive demonic ego. And that ego will do three, try to tell me three things. Number one, I'm right. Number two, you need to feel good right now. And that's why I'm going to go eat french fries. That's why I'm going to go eat cake. That's why I'm going to go eat Doritos or whatever it is I'm going to go eat. And the other thing it's going to tell me is I'm different. That somehow my case is different. That the book, that the fellowship, the steps, the, the, the whole thing, that's for the other suckers. That's for the peons. That's for the dopes. I'm too smart for this. I'm too good for this. I'm too bad for this. Somehow I'm different. Somehow my case is so unique that I don't have to do these things. And those lies will kill me. They will kill me. And in the family afterward, we also look at the family dynamic. And what else do we see? We see manifestations of the resentments and we, we don't want to resent. We want to look at these things and work our steps because resentments will kill us. How does a resentment kill me? A resentment kills me because it blocks me off from God. And it also is an emotion 
that builds and builds and builds and builds. And as that emotion builds up, my brain is going to lock in on that sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly by eating the food. And I will eat the food in search of relief to the intenable, unbearable, unrelenting, destructive pain of not eating. And eating will just make perfect sense to me. And I will eat that food in search of relief. And when I eat that food, when I do that, I am now going to trigger the physical allergy. And that physical allergy will make it absolutely impossible for me to control the amount of food that I am consuming. And I will eat much more than I intended to eat. And so where did it start? It started with a resentment. It started with a fear a selfishness. Somebody's not sticking to my script. Somebody's not behaving in a way that I want them to behave. Somebody is just not giving me what I think I deserve. Somebody is not paying enough attention to me. You know that when I'm not in fit spiritual condition, there could be eight billion people or six billion people, however many people there are on the earth, and every one of the people on the face of the earth was wearing a t-shirt that said, I love Harlan and carrying signs. It says, I love Harlan. But one of the TV stations found a guy living in outer Mongolia. I don't know why I always use outer Mongolia. I just like the sound of outer Mongolia. He's living in outer Mongolia and he doesn't like Harlan, so he's not going to wear the shirt. And he's not going to carry the sign, screw Harlan, I think he sucks. I will, go out to, I will go out to outer Mongolia, and I will spend time and money and resources trying to convince him to like me. That's insanity. 10% of the people I meet, they may like me. 10% of the people in the, in, I meet is, are not going to like me. And the 80% in the middle, gosh, I'm not even registering on their radar. But I spent a lot of time in my life worried about what other people are going to think. Because for me also, I had to worry about, are they going to be abusive to me when they see how much weight I've gained? Are they going to abuse me because of my weight or my food consumption. That's what I was really worried about. Are they gonna call me on my lies? Are they gonna let everybody know that I wrote them a bad check? Are they gonna let everybody know that I'm a damn liar? And I was afraid of that. And it was a hell that I created. And in an effort to escape those emotions, I will isolate. And we also talked about the fact that in any abusive relationship, the abuser, the first thing that the abuser does is it begins to isolate you from your support system. And overeating is a fabulous abuser. And what does compulsive overeating do effectively? It amputates you from family, 
It amputates you from friends. It isolates you. It puts you apart from those things. You cut off your relationships. You start letting friendships go. You start gravitating only to people who eat somewhat like you do, binge buddies rather than friends. So that when the abuse gets too big, too much, you have no support system left whatsoever. And that's what this disease does. It really would love you dead, but in, until you're dead, it will settle for isolating you and being highly abusive to you. And that's what this disease is. And that's what this disease does. And we've talked about the fact that oftentimes we have to be tolerated and to tolerate others. And for that, we're gonna need God's help. We're gonna need the steps. I don't know why it is this way, but it is this way for me. I cannot function in society without step 10. I just can't. I'm too scared. I'm too wounded. I'm too battered. I'm too broken. The rejection that I have felt in love relations crushes, the rejection that I have felt because of my eating disorder have permanently damaged me so that it's very difficult for me. It's Herculean for me to function in society at times because I always in my mind see myself as the fat guy, the fat boy. Now that's not reality anymore. There are many, many people that I run into that are much heavier than I. I am no longer the fattest person or the biggest person in the environment, not even close. But I still see myself as the fat boy. And I think I always will. So my first reaction when meeting someone is, how are they reacting to my weight? How are they reacting to my size? And that is a place where I need God's help. And in this chapter, we've talked about how important it is to keep things in their proper priority, to keep things in their proper perspective. Yes, I would rather have somebody not do this behavior or do that behavior but we have to cut the rope closest to our throat first. Very, very important. And there are many, many things which were brought about in this chapter that tell me that more and more every day, I need the help of a power greater than myself. Very, very important. I cannot handle life on life's terms. As long as I'm not the only human being on planet earth, I'm gonna need God more today than I needed him yesterday. When I was a kid, maybe 13, maybe 14 years old, there was a song on the radio and it was by a group called The Spiral Staircase. I don't know why I remember this, I have no idea. But they wrote a song. I think this was their only hit. I love you more today than yesterday, but not as much as tomorrow. You can look up the song. It's, it's, you can Google it. You can play it. You can listen to it. It says, I love you more today than yesterday, 
but not as much as tomorrow. And I cannot imagine loving God or loving this program any more than I do. And the reality is, is as I am lucky enough, hopefully, to wake up tomorrow morning, and there'll be two doors in front of me. And one door will be marked the food, and one door will be marked the program, God. And I'm going to have to make a choice. What door is it that I want to walk through? Do I want to walk through the door that says the food? That's an easy door to walk through. And I've walked through that door on thousands and thousands of occasions. Food gives me instant courage, instant relief, instant acceptance. It gives me an instant sense of ease and comfort that Dr. Silkworth calls the effect. And he also says that this effect is so elusive that people like me will pursue that to the gates of insanity or death. We admit that it is injurious, but we cannot after time differentiate the true from the false. And what is the true? I cannot eat Almond Joy bars with safety. If I eat one Almond Joy bar, I'm going to eat 20 of them. If I eat 20 Almond Joy bars, I'm going to eat French fries, and I'm going to eat pizza, and I'm going to eat all the things that are absolutely not on my food plan. And I am going to gain massive, massive amounts of weight. And I am going to look like crap and I'm going to feel like crap. And here's the craziest thing. I will look at food as a solution for feeling like garbage. I will look for something in the refrigerator to eat, to kill the pain of eating too much food. That's insanity. It's sort of like I burned myself at the company picnic. Would I stop on the way home for a book of matches and some gasoline to burn myself even more to kill the pain of burning myself in the first place? No, I would not. And how many thousands of times have I looked at food as a solution, as a balm to put on the, on the, on the wound? a balm to put on there to heal me from eating too much food. And they have a name for that. It's called insanity. And they have a name for people like me. They are compulsive overeaters. So the chapter reminds me, whether you're black or white, whether you're Jewish or you're Protestant or you're Catholic or Buddhist or Muslim, whether you believe in God or you do not, whether you walk on feet or you hang from the chandelier, whether you are anorexic or you are a compulsive overeater, whether you are whatever you are or not, if you are going to recover from this disease and live in a world where there are other people, you are probably going to need God too. And when I say you're going to need God, what I specifically mean are the steps particularly most sensitively 10, 11, and 12. In 10, we continue. In 11, we improve. And in 12, we practice. 
And the most important thing for me to remember is that I can use the program instead of the food and instead of deadly, deadly side effects, I will get to live and I will get to live in freedom. The disease is bondage. It's bond, the food is bondage. The food is prison. It's prison. And the program is freedom. This is the easier, softer way. Next week, we're going to study the chapter or start the chapter. We're not going to finish it. We're going to start the chapter to employers. And we're going to start that chapter. And we're going to look at the only chapter of the book that is not penned by Bill Wilson primarily, other than the doctor's opinion. We're going to look at a chapter that was penned primarily by Hank Parkhurst or completely by Hank Parkhurst. And what other very strange um, thing about this chapter, Hank was an atheist. What is the one thing about the chapter to employers that no other chapter has? There's no mention of God at all whatsoever. What we're going to attempt to do is glean from the chapter a new, fresh perspective on recovery. Okay, I've gone over, but I'm going to turn it back to Lauren or Sue or Nancy. I'm not sure which. And let's go to the questions and the answers. Well, thank you very much, Harlan. And this is I'm Lauren, and I turn it over to Sue and Nancy to handle the question and answers. I'm going to stop the recording now. <laughs>